So I know this was my second time watching this movie and I just appreciated it so much more with subtitles. So. <laughs> yeah, like really, like I could see in your eyes, like the like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> so before we get started, I just want to put it out there. If your significant other has a favorite movie that you're secretly <laughs> thinking, why is this their favorite movie? This is an okay movie. But it's not great, and you just secretly hold on to that, but you never tell them because you don't want to shit on their favorite movie because you're nice. You're a nice person, and you wouldn't ever do that. Just watch it with subtitles. Just try that, and you could save yourself a lot of trouble. <laughs> you could suddenly understand their perspective, which is, that touches on the whole theme for tonight. That is. Yeah. That is the theme for tonight. It's the theme of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, released, say, 2005. Let's say I would have been in sixth grade, so that's about 2005. Um, this movie tells the... Hi, hold on. We're doing a podcast. I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I'm not, my name's Andy, by the way. Hi, I'm Emily, and this is the Madness and Movies podcast. Where we find... Madness in the places you least expect it. And we look at pop culture through the lens of madness. And we look at madness through the lens of pop culture. Mm-hmm. Both directions are valid. This is bi-directional. Yes. So, plot synopsis. Hitchhiker's Guide is a movie about a man named Arthur Dent who lives in a house in England. And he also lives on the planet Earth, which is important because it's a sci-fi space movie and Earth gets demolished like five minutes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, his house gets demolished. Oh yeah, his house gets demolished. Yeah, okay, so he thinks his house is going to get demolished and he's like arguing with the the, the guys, the demolition crew, and he's, they're, they're like, why? He's like, what do you mean you're gonna just destroy my house? They're like, sir, well, the plans have been on display for a month. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, they were in display in a locked locked cabinet in the basement. And those are some really loud fire trucks. I'm just gonna say it, those are some really loud fire trucks. They are. Let's sit here. Let's sit here and absorb the fire truck. The demolition guy says, you know, the plans have been on display, and Arthur says, oh, whatever, they were in a cabinet in the basement, get out of here. They argue, they bicker. Um, And then his best friend Ford, Ford Prefect, which is the name of a car, comes along and says, hey, dude, we gotta get out of here, they're gonna demolish your home. And Arthur says, yeah, I know. And then Ford says, wait, hold on, how do you know? And then Arthur points to the bulldozers, and Ford says, oh, you're you know, air quote, home. Ha ha. Very funny. You're coming with me. And then alien ships show up to demolish the Earth. And they say the same thing. They say, well, the plans have been on display at your local zoning board to, you know, an Alpha Centauri. And if you can't be bothered to go look at that, then, you know, get a life and be more responsible citizens. Jesus Christ. And then they blow up the planet. But Arthur and Ford get off the planet and they meet up with Zaphod, who is the president of the galaxy and also a total idiot, and Trillian, Trisha McMillan, who is 
uh, sort of caught in a love triangle with Zephod and Arthur, and she is not a terribly fleshed out character. I was gonna try to say things about her. I'm like, she is a manic pixie dream girl. Yep, she's Zoe Deschanel. Yeah. She's Zoe Deschanel. She's a manic. <laughs> I'm like, she's smart, but not really smart. Just slightly smarter than the stupid guy. I'm like, she's clever, but not that clever. And she's kind of bold, but then she's not. And she's, yeah, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Mm -hmm. um, she's fine. And they go on space adventures, and they're trying to find the magical planet of Magrathia, where they can find the, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Uh, no, the answer is 42. They have to find the question. Right. What is the question? What is the ultimate question? What does 42 mean? We have to figure out what the question is so we can put the answer back to the thing. Mm -hmm. And they run across the universe and get shot at and have goofy existential um, <laughs> drama. <laughs> and push a lot of papers. Yes. There's a lot of bureaucracy yes. that they have to kind of fight and yeah. get through. Yeah, when they like... There's this, this great scene, right, when they're first trying to get away from the bad guys, the demolished Earth, right? And they just, and Zaphod goes, take us to hyperspace! And the computer goes, okay, pal! And they just, whoop, zip off to hyperspace. And then the bad guys that are called Vogons, they all kind of look at each other, and one of them's like, is he allowed to do that? And the other's like, I don't think he had permission. And then they call back to their home planet, and they're like, he just jumped to hyperspace! And the home planet's like, rah, rah, rah. and they're like, do we have permission to hyperspace? And they're like, please hold, and then they have a secretary run out and go get some forms, they fill out some forms, and then the and then the, the the military leader, you know, whatever whatever, like, stamps the forms and says, Okay, you have approval to jump to hyperspace. And they're like, Right! And then they follow them. Mm -hmm. That's like the fundamental like tension of the movie, I guess. Mm -hmm. Is like cool magic, sci-fi, energy. Blah! You know, against boring paperwork, paper pusher, dirty grubby. That's yeah. a core. Yeah, the, the villains of the movie yes. were like trying to stop them and stop their plans. They're basically the bureaucrats. Like, um, I think there's a description of them. There's this, <laughs> the guide, <laughs> that's where the movie. Yes, the narrator is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is an actual book. Yeah, so the guide basically says these people, they're not violent, like they're, it sets it up of these people, the Vogons are the worst people ever, but they're not really that violent, they're not going to do anything to you, but... Header, sorry, header, Vogons, subheader, not evil. <laughs> yeah, they're not evil, but, like, they're still the worst, and they're not gonna, like, kill you, they're not violent, but they're gonna, like, drown you in paperwork and make everything super slow and <laughs> stall you from accomplishing anything. Yeah, yeah, they have a whole line about how they wouldn't even lift a, father, lift a finger to save their grandmothers unless they had paperwork that was, yes. was signed, countersigned, filled out in triplicate, lost, found... Relost, buried, you know, blah blah, you know, blah 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 blah. blah. Yes. <laughs> so that's like one like key like axis of the film is like freedom and you know, woo, what are we gonna do today, right? You know, freedom and adventure and whatever versus crushing bureaucratic modernity. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the other axis, though, is really about, like, just perspective. Like, I don't, I found it very striking that we immediately, we start the film immediately with the quote, um, it is an important and popular fact that things are not always as they seem. That's the first line of the film. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the, the opening sequence is a shot is, is a sequence of dolphins, as they explain the dolphins are actually smarter than humans. Didn't you know that things are not always as they seem, huh? And they show the dolphins a little tiny square in the middle of the screen, this little tiny cutout square. And then when it and that's like as the book is describing the dolphins, and then it cuts to the dolphins' perspective, and we go full screen. It's colorful and splashy and hooray, and like really like this is a movie about perspective and about who is looking at who. Um, yeah, and, and then in that initial sequence, the dolphins are kind of, um, singing, like, but I wrote down some of these <laughs> They're so good. Do you want to sing it? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Goodbye. No, you have to sing it with oh, me. Oh, well, okay, but you didn't cue me in. You just started going. Okay. So long Again, and thanks, thanks for all, all the fish. fish. So sad that it should come to this. We tried to warn you all, but oh dear. Your world's about to be destroyed. There's no point getting all annoyed. Just something to lie back and let the planet dissolve around you. And then one of the lines was, you do not share our intellect, intellect which may explain, explain your disrespect. disrespect. For, and then it's like, for all the natural wonders or something. Yeah, for all the natural wonders that grow around you. Yeah. So long, so long, and thanks. For all the fish. That was my favorite line, that you do not share our intellect, which may explain your disrespect <laughs> for all the natural wonders. Yeah. And then and they go on to, like, forgive the humans for, like, tuna trawlers and, <laughs> and say, like, well, we really like the tiny tots. And <laughs> but, yeah, it's basically kind of um, looking at, I think the film goes on to narrate, like, humans thought or always think they're the smartest ones on the planet and, like, Actually, ha, 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 ha. yeah, no. <laughs> Actually, dolphins are smarter. And, um, yeah, and they were trying to warn you about the impending doom, but they were speaking a different language, and humans just thought they were doing tricks. Or, um, yeah, isn't that cute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that really is, like, there's... I, I just kept writing down little examples of this throughout the whole movie, right? Like, they they uh they they go to a bar. Ford takes uh, Arthur to a bar and orders like just what does he get like six pints of beer? Yeah. And Arthur's like three pints a piece before lunchtime. And Ford just looks at him and kind of like waves his hand and says, "Time is an illusion. Lunchtime doubly so." <laughs> yeah. Right. Like like just again like everything is subjective. Nothing is nothing matters. Nothing is real. Not it's just like I want beer. <laughs> <laughs> Even even when when uh, when Arthur's at a party, right? He's at the party where he meets Trillian, and everybody's dressed in costumes, and they're going like, "Oh, ha!" You know, Trillian is dressed up as Charles Darwin, and Arthur's the only one that gets that right. And he's like, "Ah ha 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 ha! You're Darwin!" And she goes, "Wow, that's so brilliant!" And, and you know, how'd you get that? No one else has seen that all night. And Arthur goes, "Yeah, well, all the people that come to these parties are idiots." Like as the like music like stops, and then of course everybody in the party staring at him. He's like, "Oh God." Right, but like even that is like a perspective joke, like like either you're in on or you're outside of it, or, you know. Like everything is 
perspective and uh, context. Yeah, and then there's the obvious example of the viewpoint gun. The point oh, of view yeah, gun. Yes, yes. And that's um, this gun that makes you see the other person's point of view. Yeah. So you shoot it at them. Um, and, yeah, yeah, and for a few brief seconds they see the world through your eyes. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like that was a really important part of the movie and kind of summed up a lot of what they were trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, I get that, that again, like, the universe is all about your perspective, and and I think it's it's important. Like the thing that I had in my head going into this is that the big book, right? Like the, the Hitchhiker's Guide, mm-hmm. in big bold letters, it, it it's it's more the Hitchhiker's Guide is more successful than the Encyclopedia Galactical, Encyclopedia Galactica because it's slightly cheaper. It also has the words, don't panic, printed on the front in large friendly letters. And that's like the whole book. That's like the whole movie, I mean, is, don't panic. <laughs> the Zaphod is just sort of like, going through life, man. And just like, whatever happens, happens. And the same with like Ford, like Ford Prefect is so like, just like, yeah, man. And the, he, when, when he shoots uh, someone else with the perspective gun. They're like, they the, the perspective that they get is like, no, it's going to be okay, man. Because the universe is just going to keep on going. And I should just keep on going along with it. And Arthur is not that. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur is panic. <laughs> Arthur is panicking. And like, which perspective is right? Right. Yeah, and I, I thought, yeah, it was kind of getting at a critique of objectivity. I always mm-hmm. talk about this. <laughs> Yes. I'm becoming yes. a broken record. But, wait, so it sets up. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about God whenever you're done with your thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so it, like, sets up this whole idea that a long time ago, like, seven billion years ago or something, people built a computer, a really, you know, sophisticated, smart computer to tell us the answer to the big question of life what is the meaning of it all and the computer answer is 42 and so now yeah the whole thing is they have to find the question what's what's the question that will have the answer 42 and that will um tell us because yeah the machine says they're like 42 that doesn't answer it and the machine is like well you, you have to find the question it's not actually what's the meaning there's some other question that will tell you this um and so yeah there's kind of this idea that there's this big objective answer that's going to tell us everything we need to know and going to tell us if there's more to life out there than what we think. If there's some meaning beyond us and it's objective and this computer can calculate it and look how far we've advanced. Look how far science has taken us. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of ultimately um, the conclusion that the film comes to is like, no, it's all ridiculous. Like, um, I think the end ends up being that there's these mice have built the earth, um, to experiment on humans and try and extract the answer from them. And so there's this big monologue where they're trying to extract the answer from Arthur's brain and not for science, by the way, 
Right. For a TV deal. Right. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> or is that so separate, though? <laughs> I'm willing. I don't know how far this is into the future, but if it's the present or further, like, science and TV deals and media are, like, inextricably intertwined. Um, mm-hmm. But, <laughs> so, yeah, they're, like, trying to, like, find this answer from his brain, and they're, like, we're going to, like, penetrate your brain or, like, extract your brain with this machine and he just goes on this long thing i'm like i don't know the answer and he like comes up with a million questions of like maybe it's how many how many (laughs) roads must a man walk down yeah my favorite was like how many bogans does it take to change a label what's six times seven i don't know i don't know (laughs) yeah and he's just like i don't have the answer and it's basically this idea that like no one has the answer there's no objective truth everyone's just living in their own point of view and like you can point this gun at people and try to get them to understand your point of view for a brief moment, but, like, that's about all there is, mm-hmm. and that's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I really liked that critique of objectivity. If I can go metatextual for a little bit, because I've also read all the books and listened to the radio show mm-hmm. and also the final <laughs> recordings. Um, <laughs> there's... I can't remember where. In somewhere in the extended lore, there's a, someone posits the theory that the question mm-hmm. and the answer cannot exist in the same space-time continuum, mm. and that if one is discovered, if if both are discovered, the universe is rebooted, but weirder than before. Oh, I really like that. And then, and then he just has a little stinger. You know, some posit that this has already happened. Interesting. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Although I also really like the idea that like there just is no there, yeah yeah question, and I feel like the computer was kind of the computer too is like this funny, you know, it's like watching cartoons and they're like well, going to ask the computer's it. job is done. The computer found the answer, right? And so, and, but then it's just like forced to just exist, and so just like. Like her eyes just like or look like they're like bloodshot and glazed over, and she's like, "Shh, the TV's back on." Yeah, but like, I feel like it's kind of making fun of, like, the computer re- represents objectivity in a way. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like the computer just like spat out some answer, like, "Yeah, whatever." It's forty-two. It's fine. And then like goes <laughs> and like punches. Can I be done now? And like watches cartoons, and like that's objectivity for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Similarly, similarly, I really liked the, this is again, like there's so many little zingers in here. I think that's really like Douglas Adams is, mm-hmm. I think that's his like, I don't know, secret superpower. Yeah. Is it, you just, in the universe, in the beginning, the universe was created. This has made many people unhappy and has been widely regarded as a bad move. I love that. Oh my gosh. That's just it. That's, you know, that's just a throwaway line, but that is, again, like, so, like, what is objectivity and what does any of this mean? Yeah. What is the meaning of life? I don't know. Nobody wants it. We don't want to be here. (laughs) Yep. Um, so, I definitely felt like Madness was very present in this movie. Mm-hmm. 
especially in this absurdism, I think um, a lot of times if you look at psychosis, um, or what we call psychosis, mm-hmm. it's, you know, a state of mind that's kind of magnifying or making a metaphor of or kind of um, narrativizing, like ma- making sense of, I guess, in a way, um, like some kind of horrific, on some level, horrific reality of the world, um, horrific or hard to deal with or um, just unbearable in some way reality of like what's going on in someone's life and so I, I felt like you could totally read this film as psychosis um, or similar to it that basically you have Arthur who like comes home one day and his house is about to be demolished mm-hmm. um, or he like wakes up one day yeah mm-hmm. and they're literally demolishing his house and they're like oh well we just have to do this because you know that's just what we do and we have to make a bypass and you have to build bypasses. <laughs> yeah, and this is just the way things are. And, and so I, I felt like from that point on, the film became in some way like his or the screenwriters or whoever's like way of making sense of that reality that like this is the world we live in. We just like demolish people's homes or um, yes. the, these things just happen because they have to happen and we've just decided they have to happen. And so that kind of absurdism becomes magnified and it becomes this whole universe and now it's not just about his house it's like this has to happen to the earth and it's not just that you know he has to go fill out paperwork to fight it it's that you know the whole universe everyone there has to fill out paperwork in order to um yeah go at in order to send the military after um the ship or whatever and it's not just that He's asking, what is the meaning of my house being demolished? What is that done for? And they're saying, well, it's a bypass and you have to build bypasses. It's that you're asking, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? And the answer is, well, it's 42. And <laughs> like every, the, the absurdism and the meaninglessness of everything is just becoming totally magnified. Um, yeah. And, and the lack of objectivity, the lack of like an objective answer about any of it. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think this is what I enjoy about this podcast is sort of that the, another way to frame that would be as that that what you just described it would be as like a genre critique, right? Mm-hmm. That this is um, potentially taking on a Star Wars model of science fiction, mm-hmm. right? And saying like like Star Wars the fundamental innovation of Star Wars was that it was a lived-in world. It was it was in a world that was shiny and flashy and perfectly built out and, you know, Star Trek has these clean, crisp uniforms and Han Solo has, like, a dirty vest and, like, pants that haven't been washed in a couple of weeks. Right? And Chewbacca looks like he doesn't, he doesn't mm-hmm. clean himself. And, you know, C-3PO's rusty and all that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, but it's, it's this universe that's lived in, and because it's lived in when there's magic, it's like heightened. It's like even more magical because, whoa, that's not supposed to happen in this gritty, stupid, boring universe. Mm-hmm. It's that contrast. And, and Hitchhiker's like starts off with that like gritty, you know, like again, that sort of like lived in universe. This is just reality for people. And then they set up this magic, right? They're like, what if there's a planet full of mystery and wonder? What if you can just travel through the universe? What if, what if? And then they just keep, like, 
knocking it down or just, like, beating that over the head with a baseball bat and going, nope! <laughs> <laughs> or in some ways they build it up, but it's... I, yeah, I actually think they kind of build it up, but it's like, what if there's this planet or there's there's this universe that's like our planet, but it's even more absurd? What yeah. if there's this... Out there, there's this galaxy, and it's sort of like what we have, but it's even more meaningless. Well, yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing, though, is they're building it up as if it's Star Wars. Right. And then turning around and saying, no, the universe would be just like us, just as stupid as us, just as boring as us. The villains aren't evil. They're just bureaucratic. Your leaders might be charismatic, but they're idiots. (laughs) There is, there is nothing special or unique or magic here. Your people are people. Your computers, your, your magical supercomputers get depressed or they watch cartoons or whatever. And again, you could totally, that in any, I feel like in any other podcast, that would be framed as like a genre critique, right? A critique of science fiction. But like, oh, what if that's a critique of us? Yeah, I think it's a critique of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I don't know. Like I was saying, like, that's what I think is cool about this podcast is, like, yeah, there's, this is, like, a whole different, like, it's perspective on, it's, (laughs) that we, yeah, I don't know, just that this is another lens through which to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm restating our purpose, but like really, like I'm really illustrating mm-hmm. <laughs> our like opening tag. Yeah, I think is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I don't know. That just really struck me while we were talking. I'm sorry, I've taken up like ten minutes trying to explain that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that like I mean, I do, I do think it illustrates how like a mad studies reading or you know a reading of something as mad can just inform it and deepen it in a lot of ways that yeah. I think in our world we love to shy away from madness and like oh that's uncomfortable I don't want to talk about that like I, I think about reactions that we've gotten from people who are like oh like, madness isn't a part of this movie like that's just a normal person yeah like, he's just he's just really having a hard time yeah <laughs> he's not mad <laughs> right and I always want to ask, like, what is that about? And I also just want to, yeah, like, I, I think it's so valuable to not distance ourselves from madness and be like, I don't know, like, what would madness add to it? Um, just like yeah. you could with queerness or anything. There's mm-hmm. tons of, like, amazing queer studies readings on things that, you know, maybe it's not the author's intention to make the character queer or something, but if you just think about queerness as possibly being part of it, just to add the layer of depth to it and it um, can tell you more about it and about the world you live in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Which, I don't know, the world that Arthur lives in sucks. And he's kind of the only one that sees it. To go back to the like panic, don't panic thing, like it feels like the entire rest of the universe is on the don't panic. Mm-hmm. Page and Arthur's walking through here, like gesturing, like gesticulating, like like looking straight into camera and going, like, "Are you seeing this shit?" Mm-hmm. And everyone else is like, "But well, that's just you know, that's just the way it is." Oh no, sorry, that's not the 
presidential release. Like they, uh, when they go, Trilly gets captured at one point, and they go to release her, and they have to stand in line. And Arthur's looking around. He's like, "Wait a minute! You're the president of the fucking universe. How are you not doing something?" And they thought, "Like, oh, right, sorry." <laughs> like everyone else, it's just like, "Be cool, don't panic, go with the flow." And like implicitly, like just ride it out. Don't question anything. Mm-hmm. And Arthur's like, "What are we doing?" Mm-hmm. It's like, "Wait, we can just cut to the front of the line. What are we doing?" And then, oh no. You know, he fills out the blue form, and they're like, oh, no, you need the other form. That one's blue. And he's like, all the forms are blue. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's, it's interesting when you said the villain isn't, isn't like evil or whatever. It's, it's bureaucracy. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I felt like that's, that's kind of what bureaucracy does, is it's like, Numbing. Yeah, it like strips itself of evil. It's like, oh, like this isn't evil. We're not like taking over the world. Like there's nothing bad about this. You need to not panic. Yeah, you need to just calm down and stand in line and wait your turn. <laughs> and and yeah, it's like what gets you don't know what? Yeah, it's it's like no, this is actually destroying our soul or it's preventing us from like accomplishing anything that needs to be done and um or it's yeah it's, it's what's preventing things from getting better or whatever um but it's like you're crazy for being the one to panic yeah as an emergency yeah i think just because of all the talk about the green new deal mm-hmm. recently like i keep i kept watching this movie and thinking like thinking you know along those lines and going climate change yeah totally i was thinking that too oh, okay because well, okay. i think the earth is not great Okay, 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 that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I definitely thought a lot about that, that, like, I think there was recently an article that said something along the lines of, you should panic right now, like, climate change is an emergency. Are you thinking of that Vox piece? There was an article in Vox that was, like, super fiery and just, like... Was it, like, you should panic? Is that what it was called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was literally called you should panic, but that was the point of the article, was, like... The world is on fire, and Democrats are bickering about how, how you know, moderate, how moderate this plan should be. Like, oh my God, the world is on fire. Right. Yeah, and that's. I, I feel like that's like such a thing, though, that the movie is trying to get at. That it's like, you can be here freaking out, screaming, panicking, and being like, the world <laughs> is on fire. Climate change is happening right now, but you have all these bureaucrats being like, oh. Like, it's fine, we're just gonna, like, sit here and push papers and, like, and please go about your job, too, where you're pushing more papers and, you know, you know and, like, everything is paperwork and it's just, like, yeah, it's just... Not only is pa- everything so. paperwork, but nothing actually works. Right. Nothing, we, we do all this paperwork and all this bureaucracy and there's still the guy standing at the train station as the train rolls right past the building, he's walking, he's running after going, hey, you were supposed to stop! But the train just keeps going. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, all these little ways that, the, yeah, again, just like, the universe doesn't actually work, but if we all pretend it does, it fill out the proper right. forms. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's all on these forms. <laughs> yeah, or fascinatingly, like, Zaphod kidnaps himself. 
and that creates like this whole like legal snafu where they're like obligated to kill the kidnapper to save the president and so they keep like all chain between shooting at him and not shooting at him and they can't decide which one and it's just this like perfect like legal snafu yeah i love that though as a metaphor for the way we respond to suicide (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh that's amazing i didn't even think of that yeah like I, i think about bureaucracy a lot with mental health but like there's so much liability tied up in it and so much paperwork and you know most of my classes i really enjoy a lot of what i'm learning but there's no denying that a lot of the work involves like how to make a correct diagnosis and how to get insurance reimbursement and um you know how, how to get their medication covered or all these things and it's like that's very much at the cost of like learning how to actually be compassionate and be a human and interact with someone in a way that's healing and friendly and so there's yeah. only so many classes there's only so many hours a right, day where right. you yeah and the university only has so much money and each person yeah. only has so much money to pay for you know um capitalism and is inherently tied to bureaucracy too but yeah i, I think there's um it's really magnified in the case of suicide and psychosis but um where someone is suicidal and it's like oh my god i have to like protect basically cover my ass like i can't get blamed for this legally and like what is the paperwork gonna say now i have to fill out this report i'm a mandated reporter so it becomes all about yeah this idea of like there's this legal thing that i have to do and i have to keep them safe from themselves so i'm gonna lock them up because that apparently is keeping them safe even though all the evidence shows that locking someone up makes them more suicidal or places them at higher risk of suicide you know all of this stuff and and yeah at the expense of just like treating you know what actually needs to be done there's an emergency here which is that someone is in so much pain they want to die and like instead of treating them like a human and like trying to alleviate their pain we're like what do the legal procedures say about this we have to lock them up 72 hours okay and this and that and like like, Why 72 hours? Because that's what it says on the form. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. And like, yeah, that's so much of like, yeah, healthcare in general, but especially mental health, I think just revolves around liability and just um, not, not like what are, we, what are we doing to help this person? It's interesting how like then that becomes the emergency, like the paperwork and the bureaucracy and the laws and the legalese, like all of that were like, oh, you know, that that's designed to be like, oh, I guess that's the way it just has to be done. But like, no, that's the emergency. We should be panicking. We should be panicking that we don't have the time or resources to actually help people who are in pain. And instead we have to just go by these like legal procedures that are designed to, yeah, like slow things down. Basically, or, you know, like, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. But it's also, yeah, I think I think it can be applied to, like, any law or any type of policy, but I think especially climate change um, as well is, like, a really important example. And I, I do think, I do wonder if the film, if that was kind of intended, um, huh. if it was intended to be a climate change metaphor a little bit. Did all the dolphins leave? Yeah, all the dolphins leave, and, and I mean, and then, you know, and then, the, and then, yeah, yeah, exactly, the earth explodes. Um, and then it's just like bureaucracy. Um, 
When was this song made? 2005 or six. When was when was the senator with the snowball? You know what I'm talking about? No. There was a senator literally stood on the, the Senate floor holding a snowball in his hands and was like, Where's this climate change everyone keeps telling me oh about? Where is this where is this global warming? He's like waving a snowball at like <laughs> Is that why they changed it to climate change? I I don't know if that that is the reason, but I think that's symptomatic of the reason. That's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. That literally that literally happened. That's really sad. <laughs> it's either really sad or incredibly cynical. And I don't know which is worse. Yeah. And maybe that's the again, maybe that's the movie. God. So you felt like it was a movie about activism, too. Yes. 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 This, I think the reason, the fundamental reason that Arthur Dent is fucking panicking is because he's an idealist. He has a very specific idea of what the world should look like and how it should operate and and as, and as everyone else, again, it's kind of like, let's go with the flow and see where this happens. And he's like, no, there should be X and Y and Z. And I want to have my key and I just want to have a nice job. And then, you know, and like, he at least had, he has a goal and a vision and a, like a set of standards. Mm-hmm. And he is, and that is why he is like, so like enraged by everything else. Not enraged, but just like upset and confused mm-hmm. and frustrated. And... Yeah, that everything else is like, see how it goes. And I I think, I I don't know, yeah, the tie-in with all of this, like, global warming and bureaucracy and whatever, like, that's the person that's pushing back against any of this. Like, I don't, he's our protagonist. Like, the plot doesn't happen without him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, though? Shit. As I'm, like, saying that out loud, I'm, like, mentally walking through, like. No, I don't think so because otherwise it wouldn't really matter that much if the earth was destroyed yeah but I mean in terms of plot points like Ford would have still escaped probably still would have met up with Zaphod mm-hmm. Ford and Zaphod probably would have but no but Ford wouldn't it. have been on earth in the first place didn't he come to earth to like mourn no no oh. no Ford was there just on a, on a research trip. Oh, okay. Ford was there doing other things. Okay. Um, yeah. So Ford probably would have just would have bumped into Zaphod. They probably would have gone and had their stupid adventure. I think Arthur just witnesses the movie. Hmm. And I guess the mice? Maybe that's... No, there it is. There it is. Mm-hmm. The mice are pulling the string through the whole movie, and keep the, the mice are like the day is ex machina. Uh, but every time they get off course, the mice like redirect them oh, back to where they need to be. Okay, yeah. Um, like reprogram the computer and shit. Oh. And the mice are only doing that so they can herd Arthur to his final destination. Okay, okay. Right? Yeah. But that's still like Arthur's like the most valuable passenger in this movie. <laughs> 
But I think it's interesting, though, because just looking at it from that perspective kind of view, mm-hmm. like, so we wouldn't have cared about the events of the movie, right, if it weren't for Arthur. Like, maybe they would have unfolded the same way, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't have any relevance to us because it's just some, oh. like, ridiculous, bizarre bunch of president. Aliens. A bunch of aliens doing a thing that doesn't, yeah, yeah. for no reason. Right. But, like, the fact that we sympathize with Arthur and he represents us and our point of view. He's the polar bear on the iceberg that we can all feel sad for. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the one who sees through the absurdity of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we, for some reason, identify with that when we watch movies. But then when we witness mad people in real life who see the ridiculousness of everything, we're like, oh, no. But <laughs> in movies, we always sympathize with the character who sees through the absurdity and is kind of going crazy with it, and, and that like gives it meaning. And I, yeah, I think we wouldn't care if we didn't have Arthur's subjectivity. Yeah, yeah. Which. Yeah, again, like, I, also that's an interesting point, because, yeah, like, the whole, there's so much in the film that is, again, like, it's, it's all a perspective joke that only works if you're a human with the exact senses yeah. and expectations mm-hmm. that we have. There's a, there's a little, there's, there's this, you know, again, like, all, I, I think this is best shown all the throwaway jokes, again, which there are so many of that do so much of the heavy lifting of this film. Like, there's a plot, but, like, so much of the, like, thematic development is through little tiny gags. Mm-hmm. But, like, there's a police car, quote-unquote, right? Like, they're walking through this city, and there's, like, getting closer and closer to the camera, and as it rolls past, it's this little, like, RC car, right? You know, that only works if you have the subjective expectations of Arthur Dent, mm-hmm. right? Like, no one else even blinks at it. Like, there's so many... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole movie is built in a very. I feel like we're running in loops again. It's it's objectivity. Right. Objectivity yeah. is dead. Look at this funny car. I think so. <laughs> I yeah. I think it's part of the film's larger critique of objectivity. It's, I mean, yeah. Um, saying like, look how meaningless everything would be if it weren't for your perspective. It's like subjectivity that imbues it with meaning or whatever. Um, yeah. 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 Or even the Vogons when they're when they're on the Vogon planet, the Vogons send them to the gray building. Mm-hmm. The gray building. All of the all of the buildings are exactly the same size and shape and they're all gray. But it's it's almost that thing where like we're like, oh, do all Asian people look the same to you? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, oh, do all gray buildings look the same to you? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really you're gonna be like that? <laughs> subjectively the gray one means something to the person behind the desk and they're all like what are you talking about right. oh. everyone else just, but again like everyone else just goes with it and our, our, I guess I shouldn't say everyone is like what do you mean like Arthur's the one that's like did what huh right I don't know, I just, I just I keep coming back to that one point. Yeah. 
Yeah, it would be, again, it, it would be normal. It would be mundane every day. Like, that's normal life for them. But because we have our first perspective, it suddenly becomes interesting and worthy of being in film. Yeah, yeah. I think similarly, and this is kind of a comment on the real world and whatever, but like even, yeah, evil is subjective. Mm -hmm. Evil is subjective. Right, right. I love movies that critique objectivity. (laughs) (laughs) And you didn't like this the first time you saw it. I know. I think. Yeah, I just, I didn't have subtitles, so. <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah, I didn't have the perspective. I wasn't able to take your perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I just, yeah, just the banality of everything, everything, everything in this movie. Like, it's, it's, it's just so banal. I really want to talk about Marvin, the depressed robot. Yes, do it, please. Okay, Marvin is like my spirit animal. I'm like obsessed with Marvin now. (laughs) He's this depressed robot, and just every word out of his mouth is just like about the meaninglessness of the universe and how (laughs) depressing everything is. And he's just so cool. (laughs) um, But yeah, I just, I thought that was also a really cool critique of like objectivity that like, we're always thinking of robots as like, yeah, like they have all the answers, they know everything. Um and or they're, you know, they're smart, they're sophisticated, they have this accurate worldview, you know, because they're yeah. neutral, we're not. And, oh yeah. And and, and and this movie goes both directions with it. Yeah, yeah. Any of the shipboard computer, well hey fellas, I would just love to do that for you. Yeah. Okay, coming right up. <laughs> yeah, I think it's this like satire on this notion that like robots are neutral and the ultimate authority can never be like it's like I don't know, like that doesn't exist. This like neutrality or whatever. <laughs> you wanna get some, some key Marvin quotes? Oh yeah. Pull a couple because there's so many good ones. Oh my god. I I just love him. Um oh my god, I love one of the first things he says is like I have the brain the size of the planet, and they have me bringing you to the bridge. He has to the guests, the Arthur and (laughs) Ford, and take them up to the ship. Brain the size of a planet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Nice. Capital. Uh, Oh, my God. I love when he says, I'd make a suggestion, but you wouldn't listen. <laughs> and right, they don't listen to that. They're like, yeah, yeah, shut up, Arthur. <laughs> shut, shut up, Arthur. <laughs> he, at one point, they're in the middle of a crisis, right? Like, there's like missiles coming towards them, and the the bubbly, happy shipboard computer is like, "Gosh, fellas, I'd love to do that for you, but uh, whoa, wouldn't you know it? My guidance system has been disabled." And, and they're all like, "What do we do? What do we do?" And Marvin kind of walks into the scene. And he's like, "I've been talking to the ship's computer." They're like, and and and. It hates me. <laughs> <laughs> I love Marvin. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, he's so good. So good. Um, you had wanted to talk about God. God. Oh my gosh. No, I already did. Okay. Yeah. I mean, loosely. Okay. 
Did okay. you want to go more into more depth? Because well, I just I, I just wanted to call out again, like the in the beginning, the universe was created. Right. Right. We all, you know, this is regarded as a very bad move. So I. You had more. I do. Oh, I, take it away. Sister. I loved that handkerchief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is more. There is so much more. <laughs> there is so much more. Okay. They go to church. Yeah, they go to this one planet and they go to church. And I guess on this planet, they believe that God sneezed or something. The, the great green apple seizure is God's name. <laughs> and he had a yeah. seizure and like sneezed the earth into. Well, he sneezed the universe into the um, and so they're all like praying, and they're like, and one day we will go up to the beautiful handkerchief, and we and we can't wait to. Yeah, their their version of the end times when the great handkerchief comes for <laughs> us. <laughs> <laughs> and then they all like the end. I love that scene so much. At the end of the service, they all like go like I guess it's supposed to be like Amen. Amen. Ah, uh, chew, and then <laughs> John Malkovich, the head priest. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> but even like their whole prayer, the whole devotional is: "We lift our noses to you, oh, <laughs> stuffy and unwiped." <laughs> I just, I love it again, you know, I love the psychosis, um, you know, not to romanticize psychosis or anything or say that it's like all just wonderful and funny, but I, I think there are definitely people who find humor and will say that, yeah, it just, it, it magnifies um, the, like, unbearable or hard to sit with realities of the world, and, like, one of these unbearable realities is that, like, all of the stuff that we're, like, we think of as sacred and hold near and dear to us is actually pretty like absurd and pretty weird and false. No offense to anybody who's like super religious listening. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, the I don't know for Christianity, right? Like the super classic one, right? Is like I don't know, like a Buddhist or something asking, like, so you eat babies <laughs> to Christians, and it's like. Well, what? Well, your 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 savior is baby Jesus. Uh huh. And every Sunday, you ritualistically consume the body and blood of Jesus. Uh huh. Oh wait. Oh no. Hold on. You know. And then and then you kind of go. Wait. No. Hold on. See. Actually. And there's like a whole. You know. And then you know. And then, you know. And you kind of explain around it and say like, no, no, no. Well, this is the actual theology. But just like that, like absurdity. If you're two steps removed from it. Right. But I, I think also on some level, like, the absurdity and in some ways the horrifying absurdity of deciding that, like, there's this universe where people are suffering and have these horrific, horrific realities and people are dying and in pain and um, just life is just kind of horrific for most people. <laughs> and the great handkerchief will end it all. Yeah, and, and the absurdity of believing that God created this or something and it's all for a reason. Some, you know, that it has purpose. Um, yeah, I think that gets magnified and, like, there's this universe where it's even more ridiculous. It's even more absurd. They're worshipping a handkerchief. And I thought that was so beautiful. I thought it was, like, just such a, 
Well, year? they're not worshiping the handkerchief. <laughs> the handkerchief is like the four horsemen, but it's. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it was just so beautiful. This like reality, this this metaphor of like how absurd it is that we like <laughs> believe that all of our suffering has some sort of divine purpose, and it's like. Yeah. The great seas, like, yeah, this idea of, like, giving such meaning and attribution, and, like, you know, these grandiose ideas about this seas that's breathed us into existence. <laughs> it's as if to say, like, this is what you sound like. Yeah, yeah. Like, the whole, uh, the whole movie, this is what you sound like. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and that's, I, I think that could be applied to a lot of psychosis, too. It's like, this is what you sound like. Like, I, I think, um, I don't know, I'm not saying this is the case for every person. It's obviously, everybody has a totally different experience. But if someone thinks the FBI is coming after them, for example, I do feel like you could put that on the government or all of us collectively and be like, this is what you sound like. This is what we do to vulnerable people. We, like, go after them, basically. We make them feel very targeted. And even if you're not literally coming after them right now, like... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we're still... You've set up that possibility as a real possibility. Yeah, we've participated in a system that's making them feel very, very powerless. And what better way to make sense or, like, make that more tangible than to say, yeah, it's like the FBI is coming after me. You know? Um, And I think what better way to make tangible the absurdity of this idea that suffering has some divine purpose than to be like, ah, chew! <laughs> Bless you! <laughs> the great sneeze! <laughs> I think my last major slash interesting point was that the narrator, right? Like, all through the movie, there's this narrator who, like, fundamentally has the plot of the movie correct, has the facts covered, mm-hmm. right? Like, he says, like, Arthur no more knew his fate than a, than a leaf, than a tea leaf knew the history of the East India Company. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, like, things like that. But, like, like, has the facts, but, like, completely misses out on the the impact, the emotional value, the significance of any of this. Yeah. And I think again, I don't, I don't know. I, I I think the most the most basic level like that is again objective versus subjective. Like Arthur is very scared and is running around, and the narrator's going, "Hmm, isn't that interesting?" Yeah. To the point where it's like, so he kind of doesn't have it right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's so he's missing so much as to be almost fun- like functionally wrong. Yeah. And with that, I'd like to take us into our speed round. Yes. This is the part of the show where we blast through all the little other scribbly notes that we couldn't quite fit into any major overarching theme or narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to start? Yeah, um, just one of the early descriptions of the Bogans, the Yerukats, mm-hmm. were 
described um, as they can't think, they can't spell, they just run things. <laughs> um, yeah, he just really appreciated that, but like, in terms of bureaucracy, that's what it is. It's no critical thinking. Yeah. Um, I was, speaking of the Vogons, they are crafted by the Jim Henson Company, because You've probably heard of Jim Henson, Kermit the Frog is Jim Henson, but also uh, you could look at some of the, some of their bigger, more elaborate productions would be things like The Labyrinth, uh, Dark Crystal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like Jim Henson doesn't just do Muppets, also does like much bigger, but they're always still have a little bit of that whimsy or a little bit of like spot, splotches of color. And this was fascinating to me that it's like, this is like the dirtiest nastiest looking Henson creations I've ever seen in my life. Right? It's like, hmm, like you can see the art director walking past the prototype and going, hmm, add more moles, more blemishes. Um, can we have the hair look greasier and wispier? <laughs> it's just these, yeah, yeah, the Vogons are just, just nasty and dirty. And can we, you know, can we get a little bit more grime into those creases? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I um, was thinking about that. I forgot the exact quote that he says mm -hmm. the odds of them when they're dropped out of the ship at the mm -hmm. beginning of the Vogon, and they the odds of them being rescued is one in blank, blank, blank to the blank, blank, blank yeah, tower. Two to the something million. Yeah, and then he says that number also happens to be the number of the fancy dress party where he met uh, Zoe Deschanel or Maria yeah. Patricia. Um, where he met a, a, a beautiful girl and completely blew it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that felt like circumstances to me. Um, that, that feeling that like everything in the universe, everything means something and aligns and all Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that it kind of didn't end up meaning anything. Um, he's just like, okay, like it didn't come back or anything. It wasn't like, so this was all for a reason. It was just like, nope. yeah, whatever, it happens to be the same number. Um, but yeah, I thought that was cool. I felt like, yeah, I, I got this like psychotic sense of like, you're trying to make meaning out of something, but also you're like magnifying the absurdity and like it's both at once and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um. Oh, this was a movie. I don't know. If, I think I called this out while we were watching it. Like it just it, it like hit me all at once. Like all of the Vogon stuff, mm -hmm. all of their stamps, all of their pens, all of their buildings, all of their spaceships are squares. Oh yeah. And rectangles, right angles, ninety degree angles, boxy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then all of the good guy stuff is all circles. It's all, all of their blasters, right, are kind of like curved and flowing. Their ship is literally a sphere. They have a big round button that they press. Marvin has a big round head. Uh, I don't entirely know what to make of that, but I guess it's just a visual illustration of like, again, like freedom and like, do whatever, man. As, you know, on the one side and then just like rigid bureaucracy on the other side, rigidity and boringness. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I really 
Um, I have the the. <laughs> I can't believe this was written before Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but I I like that though. That it's like sad satirizing something in society that like we didn't even know about ourselves yet. Mm. Yeah, the source material, late 70s, early 80s. So, yeah, so the president of the galaxy <laughs> is just a super ridiculous, like, buffoon kind of guy. Um, I think the actor who played him said he took his inspiration from, like, Led Zeppelin, but, like, on drugs. Like, like what's, like, let's just, let's just let me just be Jimmy Page, but just drunk all the fucking time. Who plays that, by the way? I didn't go on to do anything else exciting. Oh, he's great. Isn't he? He's yeah. so good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's just so ridiculous. And at one point he's saying that um, he wants to find this, you know, this big question about the universe that's going to have to answer 42. And mm-hmm. he's like, well, why? Why are you going to do that? And he's like, well, it's partly the adventure, partly to find some meaning, but mainly for the fame and money. <laughs> I just, yeah it was like I just I really liked that that it was kind of like making fun of celebrity culture but I felt like it was making fun of Trump before Trump happened yeah and yeah that's just who we are as a society we want people like that to serve as our representatives yeah similarly they have a, a quote later on where they say like like you're the president don't you have any power and someone else says no no no, no you don't understand the president doesn't have any power. The president's job is to distract attention away from power. Yes. Like, huh. Whoa, man. That was, like, another thing that I felt like in this universe, everything was way more honest. Mm. Everyone just said exactly what they meant. Like, mm. he's like, yeah, I'm doing this for fame and money. They're like, oh, no, the president doesn't have any power. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the subtext, like, rises to the surface. And mm. like, that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, my next bullet point actually feeds right into that, mm-hmm. which is that the the ship that they have, their ship is special and magical because it has the uh, infinite improbability drive, um, which they press the button and something, something, probability, they randomly appear on the other side of the universe, right? And this incredible technology um, was developed not again, not for scientific advancement, not for, not even for a TV deal, not whatever. It was developed out of spite. It was developed out of fucking spite. <laughs> They're like, they have a sequence about how, you know, scientists you know, whatever. This was this was, de- like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, I don't know. I think I'm getting all tangled around. No, yeah, wasn't this the one that was developed to, like... No, 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 the precursor of this was the... The precursor of this was developed, uh, to... Yeah, well, to, to make the host... To break the ice at parties and make the hostess's undergarments jump three feet to the left simultaneously. Right, right like, that, you know, that was... And then, and then the scientists got mad about that and... Partly because it was in the basement of science, and partly because they didn't get invited to those sorts of parties. Yeah. And, like, that's, like, the origin of this technology is just, like, spite and partying. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I also love 
when they're like introducing that technology, they're like, yeah, this technology can send you anywhere in the whole world. So it's important to dress appropriately. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that was so, so accurate to me. Like, <laughs> so reflective of the world. Like, we like say one thing that's like actually matters, and then the next thing is like, oh my gosh, so like we have to dress appropriately for this thing, or we have to follow this like arbitrary thing that doesn't actually matter. But like, that's the emphasis. It's like, follow the technology. So dress appropriately. <laughs> <laughs> that's like so our thing. That's like, our, pres- our president is, you know, these places, and he has all these policies that are, you know, going to ban immigrants and are really Islamophobic. And he's fat and ugly and mentally ill. Everybody, look at that. Ha 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 ha. Like, that is our life. It's like the thing that actually matters. But then, like, let's pay attention to the, like, really, you know, arbitrary, like, ridiculous thing that we, for some reason, decided matters more. So, dress appropriately. <laughs> Never mind the whole, you know, speeding through the universe at the speed of light and you have no idea where you'll end up. No, no, no. No, no, no. They were moving at the speed of light. Uh And then the next technology past that was hyperspace. Uh And then this was when people got bored of, quote unquote, mucking about in hyperspace. Uh This is like six steps past the speed of light. Oh, oh, wow. Well, (laughs) see? Yeah. But but it didn't even, that's not the part that I got because it didn't really in my opinion, it did not focus on that. It focused on the dress appropriately. Yeah, and again, and then on the parties. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's our world. Huh. Um, I absolutely love When the Earth Got Destroyed, that sort of sequence where they show they they're just to demonstrate like scale and magnitude and like the perspective. I re- I have this phrase in the back of my head that like the difference a difference in scale is a difference in time. Mm-hmm. That like if something becomes so much bigger, then it really it, it, it's a whole different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and so in this case, right, like the, they start off sort of like a almost like you know like a helicopter shot, a drone shot, whatever of. You know, Arthur's demolished house. And then they zoom out a couple extra hundred extra feet. And then a couple hundred extra feet. And they're doing this, like, choppy, right? And then the the, the orchestra kind of accompanying it. And with each cha-cha, you know, it's the camera's pulling back. It's, it's like, cutting. It's, it's not zooming, like, smoothly. It's, like, choppy. It's, like, cha-cha-cha-cha. Yeah. Like, stepping out one step further and further away from Earth. So now you're seeing his house. Now you're seeing the whole field. Now you're seeing a cloud. Now you're seeing a continent. Now you're seeing... You see the whole... You know, you're, you're, and it's following you know this impossibly huge spaceship. You're zooming out and you can kind of see the side of it. Now you can see most of the body of it. Now you can see another one. Now you can see two of them. Now you can see five. They go... You know, and then you can see a thousand of these... You know, these, these spaceships that seemed impossibly, monstrously, overwhelmingly large just a second ago. You see a thousand of them like yeah. surrounding the earth like a pincushion. It's like, and, it's like, and then the earth is demolished and everybody dies in like a quiet little poop. Mm-hmm. Like it's not big. It's not like... It's not subjectively like powerful. It's, it's so, it's so 
removed and separate, a difference in scale, a difference in time. Oh my God, it's just such a beautiful, it, it's amazing. It's yeah. it. If you're gonna like blow up the earth in a unique way that hasn't been shown before, right? It's not like fiery death and Millennium Falcon blasting away from it going, hold on kid! Like, oh my God, what a beautiful Ah, I would want to call out craftsmanship when I see it. God damn. Yeah. That was amazing sequence. There's a lot of stuff like that. It's a crying fucking shame that this director never got hired again. Yeah. This is the end of his career. That is so weird. Yeah, I didn't do that great in the box office. I wonder why. I have a theory. That is basically British humor. Yeah, and they tried to pour it over to an American audience that wasn't ready and wasn't interested. Yeah. I don't know. I liked it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so, move, though. What, right. what, what you got? Keep going. <laughs> mm-hmm. When they land on the planet where they're supposed to find the question, mm-hmm. whatever, and it's like, this planet is closed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they keep trying to go toward the planet, yes. and yeah. then there's this recording, yeah. and it's like, well, now we, you know, three missiles, and I'll blow up your ship. We appreciate your continued interest <laughs> in our planet. <laughs> as, as, a, as a sign of our thanks, we've now dispatched two thermonuclear missiles. And then it says, to ensure the quality of training, or ensure the quality of procedures, or something like that. Yeah, well, to, for, for training and quality assurance purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your death may be monitored. <laughs> <laughs> Have a I, nice day. And then he smiles and the recording fades out. I love that. Just, yeah, I get it. This, like, magnification of bureaucracy that, like, you know, we're so used to hearing that phrase repeated over and over, whatever we do, whatever assistance we need. I'm pretty sure even on, like, a suicide hotline, you, you hear that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all maybe reported for training mm-hmm. purposes. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And <laughs> it's like, now, even in death, it's, you know, just bureaucratic and simple and clean. And we appreciate you, but here's some missiles. And <laughs> Have a great day. <laughs> Oh man, oh man. Uh, I, this is my last one. Yeah. I would really like to call out there's a, a, a beautiful little exchange towards the end of the movie. Uh huh. Um, where, uh, sorry, Bartfast, um, who is sort of the architect of the planet Earth. And like, that's the, the planet Earth was manufactured for the mice, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he was sort of the guy pulling the blueprints. Um, and he sort of has this exchange where they're talking about, like, mice? Mice ran the planet? What sense does that make? Nothing, none of this makes sense. And Arthur's, like, having his mind blown and trying to, like, make sense of the world around him. And Slurry Barfest is like, yeah, you know, at, at some point, like, the universe is big and complicated. At some point, you just have to say, you know, hang the sense of it all. And, uh, you know, I'd rather be happy than right any day. And Arthur goes, oh. does that work? And Slurry Barfest is like, well... No. I mean, that's, that's where it all falls down, really, isn't it? 
I'd rather be happy than right any day. Eh, except that I'm not. <laughs> except that I'm not. Crap. <laughs> yeah. I didn't quite get that. Because I, I felt like that was the conclusion the movie was leading to. I guess it was like yeah. leading to this conclusion. There's no right answer. Just be happy. The kind of like, no, not that either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that is. That's the whole, <laughs> the whole point. Okay. Yeah, that's where that's where it all that's where it all just converges on that quote that that moment. <laughs> I love that though. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, yeah, that's accurate. I think I just it's slightly cynical, very honest, and kind of banal. It's like, yeah, well, <laughs> can't be happy either, can you? Because <laughs> that's like my general viewpoint too. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it doesn't mean like, just try to like, be happy for you guys. That's great though, because yeah, I, I do feel like sometimes like existentialists and nihilists do this too. They get a little too like, oh, like, nothing is real. Life is what you make it, so like, just be happy. And just, like, <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, no. No. <laughs> It's like this, like, rightist version of, like, so just think positive, and then yeah. you won't, like, the systemic condition, material conditions of oppression won't apply to, like, life. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. my last comment was I just wanted to acknowledge the beauty of that whale sequence. Oh, my God. <laughs> the whale. <laughs> yeah. And um, the petunias. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, there's... When does this happen? I forget. This is, they are, the thermonuclear missiles are coming at them, and they push the magic button, and the magic button turns the missiles into a bowl of petunias and a sperm whale. Oh yeah, okay. And so then the whale is like falling, 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 and like it goes through this long <laughs> of what the whale is thinking as it's falling, and it's like naming things, and like coming to terms with its identity, and it's like, who am I? What do I think? And what does it mean to be a, a person or a whale or whatever? And it's like, well, I guess I'm going to need this, a tail, this body part, and this is my head, and this surrounding me is the wind, and oh, the ground is approaching. I'm going to call it the ground. I wonder if it'll be my friend. And then it hits the ground. No, it didn't. High ground! <laughs> and then. Thud splat whale guts. And then it's like, it's funny, because the only thing the bowl of petunias thought was, oh no, not again. I don't know, that just like sums up the whole movie. <laughs> Everything sums up the whole movie. That is, so, like, it is so, like, internally consistent. Yeah. So I love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, not again. They say, they say that if we understood why the bowl of petunias thought what it did, we would understand life a lot better. So I was busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, well, no, I don't need to. I just, yeah. Okay. That, uh, that there's also this moment where they're like, the moment of like the big reveal that like 
the one moment of like actual magic in the movie uh-huh. is like Arthur Dent is introduced to the factory floor where they build the planets, right? But they get there on this like rusty, untrustworthy kind mm-hmm. of like rickety, you know, safety. You know, it looks like a scissor lift or something, but it moves horizontally. You know, it looks like a rusty 40-year-old scissor lift that kind of is, like, barely booting up. And, chunk, 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 and then it starts moving faster. It's like, oh, no, no, no. And then just, like, they just hit this, like, moment. They just come out of the tunnel, and there's just, like, light and beauty. And the music swells, and it's magical. I'm just, like, I don't know. Something about that, like, collision of, like, yeah, just this rusty, untrustworthy bucket of bolts blasting into the future. Just like, just like witnessing majesty from this like, yeah, clunky piece of construction equipment. And they're like flying past. They're like, look, the Himalayas, aren't they beautiful? We just installed them. Hi, Mike, how you doing? You know, and they, and they, they breeze past a guy who's like painting snow onto the side of the Himalayas with like a hose. Hi, Mike. Oh, hi. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah, just, again, I don't know. What, one more just example that I wanted to highlight. I'm just this collision of like the world is magical but it's kind of not it's kind of just bureaucratic and these are just a bunch of construction workers yeah so last time we talked about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind that was for valentine's day um and my favorite <laughs> and it's a good romantic movie nothing bad happened <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but we use that movie to kind of talk about trauma as demonic possession, basically, or the way we treat trauma as the way we've historically treated demonic possession, that basically there's this, like, thing, this, like, separate event that's taken over somebody's body and you need to get it out or move it so that they don't think about it again or so that it doesn't have influence over them or their daily life. It's not really a part of them. Um, and uh, so we, we talked about kind of that and how we do trauma now. And we got some really interesting feedback on that. So here's one example of a comment from Facebook. I basically like it that I do take issue with what I perceive to be a mischaracterization of trauma treatment and a potentially dangerous one. It seems to me that you guys are conflating lay understanding of trauma treatment with actual trauma treatment. It's not about exercising demons or putting down baggage. It is about carrying the baggage in a way that we are not swinging it around unaware, destroying ourselves and hurting others. By doing this, we learn to carry our wounds and make use of them in a way that serves ourselves, our loved ones, our, and our community, instead of unconsciously enacting it, which is what invariably happens to undealt with trauma. It's not exercising a demon, but acquainting ourselves with the demon, finding it, and healing it when it smells. A person who can't get past healing the trauma is happening now, reenacts the trauma on their loved ones in dissociated ways. It is the parent who flies into a rage and beats their kid because they can't separate the kid from their trauma. It's the cop who shoots someone because they are reminded of something they experienced as dangerous or was taught through intergenerational racism, another hardened response to trauma. Racism is all about being able to accept the pain and vulnerability and the horrors of an unjust world, so all our problems are due to it affect in it and the other. Or it is the subtle way we invalidate each other, are cruel, and contribute to systemic violence. There are fairly convincing threads of thought slash literature that can trace everything traumatic that we do to each other from systemic racism to war as coming from unacknowledged and unprocessed 
support, it is essential as a society that we deal with our collective and personal traumas. It is like vaccines. It is our collective responsibility to learn to carry our wounds, to not push them on others. So when someone says, you should see someone about that, they are right. But of course, there are practitioners who follow the model you criticize and those who work in traumas. And if you continue to live in a traumatizing environment, there's little team someone can do. It seems by the end of this podcast, we clarify this a bit. In essence, we agree very much about the weaknesses around our cultural understanding of trauma. But I think most trauma therapists don't care for that narrative either. Um, and that led to quite an interesting discussion. Did you, Wendy, did you get a chance to read some of those comments? Some. I wasn't too involved in it. Uh, my impression was that people were pushing back against, or pushing back and forth about what they perceived as the normal, yeah, the normal course of it, like like that's not what a real trauma, whatever the therapist would say. And other people say, no, I have definitely experienced that, and that has been most of the therapists that I've seen. Other people going, well, I had a really good therapist, and well, I didn't have a really good therapist. Sort of that. Yeah, I saw some of that, and that was about as far as I got. Yeah, I I, think I don't so. think so. Yeah, I think there were quite a few people kind of saying, like, that's not, like, okay, you can have this idealized version of trauma therapy, but that's not what trauma therapy looks like a lot of times. It can actually be re-traumatizing. But I think there were also people pushing back and saying, like, no, not all trauma causes people to be abusive. Um, Not all trauma causes people to kind of become this, like, other different type of person, um, basically the demonic possession model. Um, sometimes trauma is just part of who we are and that's okay. Um, yeah, I, I personally, I found that comment really fascinating because there's still this idea reflected in that comment and, you know, not just that comment, but in all of society that, um, yeah, there's this like separate category of trauma and, um, there's this, separate idea of, like, if something falls into the category of trauma, then it means that it changes our whole identity, and it changes our whole persona and our ability to have control over our actions or be our true selves or something, and we need to process it. Um, but the reality is that, like, nothing and no one exists, at least in my opinion, exists in a vacuum, and we are all shaped by the events that kind of make us who we are, and we get to decide, like, this one's trauma and this one's not, you know. Um, there, there's a lot of researchers who are shaped by um, this idea that empiricism trumps all and empiricism is the only source of knowledge or whatever. And, it, you know, that, that hurts a lot of people. Is that trauma that they should go process? Or, um, yeah, there's, there's people that are, you know, told that you're only valuable if you work 40 hours a week or whatever, if you work full-time, you're this productive member of society. Is that trauma that they should go process? I mean, maybe. But it's, it's just interesting um, kind of what we consider trauma and what we consider, you know, just, oh, that's just knowledge or that's just part of who we are. Um, so, I want to... Pull, pull one more good one. Yeah, one more good one. I would also argue that the emphasis on treating trauma serves the function of depoliticizing it and stripping it of potentially recuperated social agency 
I did work on this in the context of the global mental health paradigm and military occupations. Um, and then this episode sounds really interesting. So yeah, that's that's a really good point that answers that question. Yeah, but um, yeah, so please keep commenting. Yes. Yes. And, and let us know too. I, I read those anonymously, but please let us know if you're okay with them being read with your name or any particular name that you prefer to do that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if we need names. That's you. Um, yeah, and yeah, just keep discussing it. Let us know if you have any suggestions for future movies. We're, we made this huge list of movies and we're now getting... Working our way well through them. Yeah, we're getting nearest to the end. We still have a few more, but... Oh, we're, you know, nah, I wouldn't say we're near the end, but... Yeah, yeah we're over halfway through them. So, yeah, I would... If you have any suggestions, we would love to hear them. We also have, like, quite a few horror movies on the list, and I'm procrastinating <laughs> those. <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't like horror movies, so if you have any non-horror movie suggestions that we can use to procrastinate the horror movies that we know we should do because they're really great, but they're so hard, um, then please send them away. Let's everybody, let's everybody pressure Emily into watching The Exorcist together. <laughs> no, I'm like. Some movies that I'm like, this isn't this, this doesn't even count as a horror movie, but I still don't want to see it because it's mm-hmm. scary. But okay. one day. All right. Okay. We're good. Yes. Mad love. Bye.